1: Sports Talk Mississippi Uh on your radio and in the game right here on Super Talk Mississippi.
2: Tuesday afternoon, Sports Talk Mississippi streaming online at supertalk.fm. Glad to have you along. Richard Cross, Michael Borky, Brian Haydad, and Brian Scott Rippey. Sports Talk is brought to you every day by Mississippi Land Bank. You can find them online at mslandbank.com. If you've got land financing or refinancing needs and you're in North Mississippi, Mississippi Land Bank can help. They've been financing land for over 100 years. I understand what goes into it. So if, uh, if if you qualify, I don't mean like from a credit standpoint, I mean if, if this sounds like something that uh, you could use some help with, give them a call. Mississippi Land Bank, you can find the phone number or the branch locations uh, that are closest to you on their website, MSLandBank.com. Glad to have you along as we kick off this Tuesday afternoon. What's up, boys? Workshopping a hot tag for you. Okay,
3: And it may not actually be all that hot, but I've been thinking about this for the last hour or so. okay? And when you talk college football when you talk SEC, there are a lot of people that think that this is the end of the road for Derek Mason at Vanderbilt. I think they're gonna win six, maybe seven games. And here are the six at Purdue, Northern Illinois, UNLV, at South Carolina, Kentucky, East Tennessee State. Vanderbilt's going back to a bowl game. That didn't include a road game at Ole Miss, and there's a lot of questions about Ole Miss, and at Tennessee, who they have owned as of late.
2: All right, walk me through their wins again. At Purdue. Okay, you're chalking that up as a win for Vanderbilt. Northern Illinois. Okay. UNLV. All right.
3: At South Carolina.
2: Kentucky, and South Carolina
3: not very high on South Carolina I think they're just going to get physically beat up a lot of question marks there as well even though you know they got the transfer running back from Clemson former five-star so maybe their running game will be better this year Kentucky and East Tennessee State and they still have wiggle room with games at Ole Miss and at Tennessee who again they've completely owned in the last three years
4: well, I agree with what you're saying. Why do you think it's the end, why do people think it's the end of the road with Derek Mason? They went to a bowl game last I, year
2: in I, Vanderbilt.
4: I, I've
3: and heard that a lot. man. I, I mean, really? mean, oh yeah, I, I was locked in on. Uh,
2: I feel like that's an uninformed position. I know that a lot of people have said, "Oh, the two hottest seats in the SEC are Gus Malzahn and Derek Mason." I don't believe that. They won six and went to a bowl game last year. Were a win away from going to a bowl game two years ago. Three years ago, they won six and went to a bowl game. I mean, they've they, they've showed steady progress in the last three seasons under <laughs> Derek Mason. Now, the first two years were not good. They were three and nine and four and eight. And in that 2014 season, his first year, they looked like a train wreck, and he couldn't figure out who his quarterback was going to be, and they kind of played quarterback roulette, and that was not a good thing. Vanderbilt feels stable to me, uh, un, unless it is simply there's a new athletics director and. You believe that he wants to make a change and, and he's wanting to put his stamp on the football program. I'm not buying into that. I, I I don't think I'm buying into six or seven wins for Vanderbilt this year. but I'm not buying into Derek Mason losing his job even if they go five and seven.
3: It, let's say they go five and seven. Could you imagine a coaching search for Vanderbilt in a stadium that you have not touched? Since nineteen eighty one, as far as renovations go. And he goes six and six, five and seven, six and six, five and seven, and you fire him. Could you imagine trying to find somebody that would take that job?
2: At I mean, Vanderbilt. You'd be able to find somebody because you're gonna pay three million dollars a year and it's an SEC sure. job and there are only fourteen of them. But candidates one, two, three, and four would probably say no. Two Who's bowls the Rick three Ray years? of
0: college football. That's who you're gonna hire there.
2: See, I don't agree with that. Um, now, if Vanderbilt were to roll out its coaching search in the way that, let's say, things go south and Gus Malzahn doesn't make it, again, you remember we did some like uh, hot take deals a while back, and my hot take was all 14 of the SEC coaches will be back next year? Mm-hmm. I'm standing by that, but let's say that things go sideways at Auburn and Gus doesn't make it. Obviously, the names that get rolled out as a potential replacement to Gus at Auburn are going to be big-time names. Now, who they ultimately would get, that's an altogether different conversation. But if Vanderbilt or Vanderbilt fans try to roll out the same names that Auburn might roll out, to replace well well then yes it's obviously going to be a disappointing coaching search but if Vanderbilt approaches their coaching search the way West Virginia did last year or the way Louisville did where maybe you get disappointed one time and then you go hire a really good solid coach like they did with Scott Satterfield then that could be a successful process
0: Maybe they could get Gus Malzahn, who actually took that job before he took the Auburn job. They could just go get him and finally bring everything back to square one. Gus took what job? The Vanderbilt job.
2: What? Yeah. I don't remember that at all. I'm like 99% positive I'm right. That Vanderbilt made a run at Gus Malzahn when he was at Arkansas State before oh, Auburn swept in wrong. and hired him away? I run? am
0: wrong. He, they, he was at Auburn still, and he I think he, they said he won I thought he I thought he took the job, but it's saying that he just turned it down.
2: Yeah, I have I have no recollection about that. He
0: was he was at the offensive coordinator, and uh, they 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 went after him before they hired Mason. It looks like.
2: Okay, I got you. Fair enough. Uh, hey, you want to text the show? You can do so six zero one eight seven nine four three nine five again six zero one eight seven nine four three Nine five C Spire, customer inspired. Barry and Laurel says Freeze would be knocking down the door at Vandy. It's
4: an interesting thought. Would he that was big city?
2: <laughs> oh
0: yeah. Here here it is. Here it is. From the Washington Post. They they reported that he accepted the job on december 12,
5: thousand ten. Oh, okay. But
2: then backed out of it. Fair enough. Uh, Richard and Wiggins asked if there could be a hot seat in Oxford I don't think there's going to be a hot seat in Oxford unless it's just an absolute disaster who's there to cool the seat off yeah, that's a reasonable question as well you mean like from an administrative standpoint yeah nobody a ghost and, and and with no disrespect intended to Keith Carter as the interim athletics director or Larry Sparks as the interim chancellor but the ability to make big, institution-changing decisions right now seems to be
4: filled with red tape. I don't even really think that's a disrespect. I think they probably understand that for the most part. Yeah.
2: Um, number, let's see, here from the 601 says Vanderbilt's not going to beat Kentucky. I wouldn't I thought- be so sure on that. Kentucky lost... A-
3: Stoops has done a great job at Kentucky, undeniable what he's done there. But they lose everybody, with the exception of a quarterback that couldn't really throw all that well from last year's
2: team. Yeah. Well, I was going to ask you if we're underselling Kentucky at all this year. We might be,
3: because they've been so consistent as of late under Stoops. And he's recruited well for Kentucky
2: quarterback returning. Think what you will about Terry Wilson. Obviously, they're replacing Benny Snell, one of the best running backs in school history. Their backup running back is back, and their third leading rusher from a season ago is back. Um, they've got their top receiver back, but then have got to replace a bunch of other guys. Only four starters return on the defensive side of the ball. To me, that might be the biggest difference for Kentucky. I mean, obviously, not having Benny Snell changes things for you on the offensive side, but I would say Josh Allen is more difficult to replace than Benny Snell. you agree or disagree with that statement? Probably fair. I mean,
3: remember what he did to Mississippi State uh, to, to bring it back local. He single-handedly caused false start penalties just by existing in that game. He was dominant. Unbelievable. You won't have oh, that okay. anymore.
2: You're absolutely right. Josh Allen had 88 tackles, 17 sacks last year, four and a half tackles for loss, and played in some pass coverage as well with uh, with a level of effectiveness. We got a bunch to get through this afternoon. Uh, lots is going on. Dollars wise, who spends the most in the SEC in recruiting? Who spends the least? And how important is that? Pro Football Focus takes a look at the highest-graded returning players at each position in the SEC. Mississippi State and Ole Miss both scrimmaged on Saturday. Matt Luke and Joe Moorhead talked after the scrimmage. We'll bring you some of their thoughts. We continue with 100 teams in 100 days. Today we are on number 11, and we are back in the SEC. Baker Mayfield running his trap. The Cowboys have sent out a uh anticlimatic press release this afternoon. Auburn has named a starting quarterback. Mike Leach talked about Mississippi State apparently a long time ago, but we've got the audio, the pick of the day, and a whole lot more. Sports Talk Mississippi. Just getting started with you in the Renaissance Bank studio. Renaissance Bank understanding you. 2:54 p.m. so 25 minutes ago the official LSU Twitter account sent this message out for LSU PD potential scary situation on the LSU campus. LSU PD colon reported armed intruder in Coates Hall. Run, hide or fight. LSU PD on scene monitor lsu.edu for further information. I don't think I've ever seen that. Now, they did follow up. It said, run, exit the area, and move away from danger. Hide. If escape is not possible, find a safe area to hide. Fight. This is an absolute last resort.
3: As it turns out, by the way, that comes directly from the U.S. Department of Homeland Security's active shooter plan. That is the language that they use. And so it's just replicating that.
2: Okay, so there you go. Um And that they put a link to ready.gov slash active shooter that shows during an emergency situation, run and escape if possible, hide if escape is not possible, fight as an absolute last resort. Yeah, there were a lot of people that took that tweet and kind of ran with it. It was like, oh, they're crazy at LSU, so... um as we talked about yesterday, sometimes context is important. LSUPD has just put red crime scene tape around the perimeter of excuse me, of Coates Hall. So we'll uh, we'll keep an eye on that story as we uh, we roll through the afternoon with you. Um, let's go back and listen to Joe Moorhead from Saturday night. Mississippi State had their second scrimmage. Uh, fall camp and Joe Moorhead um, talked to the media after it was over Mississippi State has completely restricted media access to uh, to practice they did not do that for the first oh hey dad what was it two weeks worth of practice where you guys were able to go and watch 20 minutes or so each day yeah, I think or, we got like most five, days practices. And, so five
0: practices I think we got five practices
2: Okay, so there were five practices where the media was allowed to go and watch stretching drills and, or, you know, stretching and maybe some individual type drills, and then they had everybody leave. But that access has been completely cut off as we get closer to the uh, the start of the season. So, what Joe Moorhead has to say is about the only information you get from Mississippi State's practices right now. He was asked on Saturday night about the overall health of his football team as we get closer to game week.
5: I'm talking to you know Thomas and his staff when no one's out for an extended period of time, so I think normal practice fifteen or sixteen, I think it's a normal bumps and bruises of camp, but no one that's uh, out for the word indefinitely. Indefinitely or for an extended period. Of time. I should know that English major. Indefinitely. <laughs> is that right? Yeah, sure. Right. Okay. okay. Good. So Kendall should be ready for the open. Yeah. I mean knock on wood. I no, mean upper yeah. body. I mean he's been He's been doing a bunch of stuff and kind of progressing them into team drills, but uh, you know he's. Uh, and we're anticipating him being ready. So, but so you never know. Willie back in practice full time. Sure, Willie, Willie back in practice full time. Willy Willie, still got a lower body, you know, we held him out today, and we're you know, cautiously optimistic for uh, that. When we start ULL prep, that he'll be ready to go.
2: Good no- to know that Willie Gay does indeed still have a lower body. <laughs> you need one of those to play football, I think. It helps. Who was the uh, the first player, Hey Dad, that was asked about? That's Kendall
0: Jones, senior defensive tackle.
2: Okay, so uh, optimistic that he will be back, and also optimistic, cautiously optimistic. I think was the uh, the word that Joe Moore had used on the uh, the return of Willie Gay. Uh, Football related question: Can you improve on last year's penalty numbers?
5: Yeah, I, I think. Uh... You know, after the Kentucky debacle, I think we got it cleaned up pretty nice. Uh, you know, I think actually statistically we were in the middle, maybe the upper, upper half of the of the conference and penalties. And then, you know, the the, the bowl game kind of, you know, lost track of that a little bit. And you know, had some. To me, there's going to be, you know, holds. There's going to be pass interference. There's going to be things like that. But it's the the pre snap offsides. And, you know, the, the, uh, the post-snap deals. But, yeah, I, I think year two, when you talk about, you know, discipline, as you're mentioning, uh, I think that ties into culture. I think we're seeing great leadership in chemistry, and, and I would hope discipline on and off the field is part of that.
2: Yeah, and, and that's what all coaches want. You're going to have pass interference calls. You're going to get holding calls from time to time. You'll have to deal with uh, the judgment calls of targeting that go along with uh, the game when you're playing it at a really high speed. But coaches get frustrated when you don't line up right, when you have delay of game penalties, when the defense jumps offside, and certainly, hey, Dad, when you have personal fouls, extracurricular stuff.
0: Yeah, and, and that was a problem for MSU at times last year. He mentioned the Kentucky game, one of the the sloppiest, most penalized games I've ever been, uh, been able to witness. And, and then in the bowl game, you know, you had you had a targeting issue that cost you a player. Um, You had, you know, just just those sloppy pre-snap penalties, and that's what, you know, State can probably chalk up a couple of losses to that. Even the Kentucky game, you know, as bad as the score was, if State is a little sharper in that game, and, you know, as as Borky mentioned in the uh, the first segment, you know, Josh Allen was a big reason for that, why State could not, you know, get things going offensively, uh, but penalties were a huge part of that. So yeah, that's something that obviously they want they want to work on, um, but you know, we'll see if it
5: comes to fruition or not.
2: Is there, at this point, a clearly defined rotation at wide receiver?
5: Well, They're making it hard. I mean, when you look at the... Which is a good thing. When you look at the uh, at the Z position, you've got Osiris and uh, Javante. He made that correction. So if you are, it's a long A. Straight line across it on a soft A. Uh, and they're really pushing each other, and, and he's a guy coming in from Juco that has made a lot of nice plays in camp. Uh, you know, Dedrick, uh, Azuber, and Austin. And then... Uh, Gidry and Cam, you know those those guys are all pushing each other, and I I don't know that necessarily. I don't know if it'll define itself up until the game week. You know what I mean? But but to me, it's it's a good sign when you have guys that are pushing each other and there's true competition there.
2: We talked yesterday uh, about this topic a little bit. There was a question about whether or not Joe Moorhead thought that his entire roster would be available for the opening uh, game of the season. It was obviously a, a question that was intended to be about suspensions going into the season. Here's how he answered that question.
5: Uh, I mean, we'll get that information to you. So on as uh, game day or the day before, anyone who's going to you know miss the game will provide you guys with that list. So it's easier to do at that point.
2: Easier to do at that point, he says. So we will wait and see on suspensions going into the uh, first game of the year. And then finally, uh, he told you how to pronounce it just a second ago, a little bit more on Javante
5: Payton. He's got he's got very good speed. Uh, he's got unique body control. I know we kind of c- compared him to a guy I was at when I was at Pitt, and that was a long time ago. Kind of sinewy, you know, kind of real quick start and stop, change of direction. You know, he's he's got you know good natural hands, but uh, you know he's the kind of guy at the either the Z position or he could probably play the slot too. That, that, that combines good athleticism with good change of direction and natural natural ball catching skills.
2: So, hey, Dad. That was um, some of what Joe Moorhead had to say. You obviously there were, were there for the uh, the entire question and answer period on Saturday night. Is there anything else that stood out to you? Anything that uh, that you think is interesting about this team at this point in camp?
0: Yeah, you know, this team right now, it's it's basically sort of set in stone. Uh, you know, outside of uh, the quarterback issue. Uh, one thing that I think got asked, but we didn't have a clip of, but we had this information come out today: that sophomore wide receiver uh, Devontae Jason, who had been missing uh, practice for a, a personal issue, some sort of family issue, is back on campus as of this time, and and, and you know part of the team and undergoing all activity. So that's a big boost for uh receiving core if he can come in and, and you know provide a little bit more depth. Uh, but beyond that, yeah, I mean this team right now is is just sort of you know at that point in practice, and I think most teams in the SEC are where. Once they name their quarterback, it's just about getting to game week, being healthy, and being ready to play that first game.
2: Has this been, and I think most coaches would say if the answer is yes, it's a positive, has it been kind of a boring fall camp? Uh, yeah, you
0: could say that, and, and I agree with you with what coaches would say there. They, 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 you know, drama in fall camp doesn't seem like a good idea. Uh, but, yeah. yeah, but beyond the the quarterback competition, you know, what is there to talk about with Mississippi State? Uh, you know, you know, Kylan Hill's going to be the running back there. They had some some. Position changes on the offensive line, but that unit seems to you know have come together pretty nicely. Defensively, you got to find out who's going to you know play in the middle and try to you know fill the incredible hole that Jeff Simmons leaves. But you feel good about your defensive ends, you feel good about your linebackers and your secondary. So you know Bob Shoop has been very uh, adamant that he thinks this team can be you know good defensively again. You can't say as good because they were number one in the nation last year. Uh, but yeah, it really has sort of been a storyline free. Uh, kind of camp outside of the quarterback competition, and then you know, we'll find out what happens with any possible suspensions going
2: forward. All right, we will uh, perhaps get to some more questions about Mississippi State as we move forward this afternoon. When we come back, we'll let you hear some of what Matt Luke had to say about Ole Miss's second scrimmage of fall camp that happened on Saturday night. Obviously, they practiced yesterday and practiced today. As well, so we will uh, we'll get to that The conversation with Matt Luke. Uh, I guess came after practice yesterday. That's when we come back and we continue with you in the Renaissance Bank Studio. Renaissance Bank, understanding you. C text line. Richard from Wiggins sends us a picture of the Popeye's uh, chicken sandwich and says, "Thank you, Ryan Haydech." You're welcome. All right. You got another one.
0: Uh no, I haven't had one since I had the first one.
2: Uh, how long are you gonna wait till you have another
0: one? I don't know. Just depends. I had chicken last night, but I didn't
2: have Popeye's chicken. I ate a hey I mean you I raved about it. I wouldn't think that you would wait that long for something that was that good. It's
0: not it's not great for you though. I'm trying to I still am trying to lose the weight here, you know.
2: Yeah, I understand. So uh, I understand. Uh, 601-879-4395, the number for the ceasefire text line. We heard from Joe Moorhead just a couple of minutes ago. Let's uh, scoot over to Oxford and hear from Matt Luke. Same opening question: Health of this team at this point of fall camp?
1: Uh, pretty, pretty good actually. I think um, Jalen Julius kind of rolled his ankle over. I think, but I think he'll be back tomorrow. I think he was limited today. But uh, it's not, nothing serious. I thought uh, Hamilton Hall had a, uh, kind of a higher ankle sprain, he may be, you know, four or five more days. Uh, but uh, other than that, I thought we came out pretty healthy.
2: Okay. Kadir Shepard, any update on him? Hand injury,
4: broken hand? He was out there yesterday um, with a club on his hand, like kind of like the Patrick Willis club. Um, I couldn't tell if he was red or green. That might be because I'm part colorblind or I wasn't paying close enough attention, but he was back at practice. Um, so has that thing wrapped up, I believe that was the first time he's been back at practice since suffering the injury. So, yeah, Monday, first time. Okay.
2: And then Alex Gibbons' green non-contact jersey yesterday.
4: No pads. Just kind of roaming around the sideline doing individual stuff with the back. Um, Looked like some aerobic-type techniques. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but Hot yoga, maybe? Possibly. I'd, you'd have to defer to Haydad on that. But he's been doing that since Friday. Friday was the first time he was really back on the practice field, at least at the portion we were allowed to watch. They said they'll know probably like a definite answer to, uh, with regards to whether he'll be able to play it against Memphis on Monday. Um, I'm assuming that if he's not ready by Monday, his conditioning is just going to be too out of whack to be ready for a game on Saturday is kind of the vibe I caught there. So um sounds like it's going to be close. I would... Actually, I'm not going to say that. Never mind. What? I'm not going to guess one way or another, because I'm going to end up being wrong.
2: Okay. Um, It was hot yesterday. Like, I played in a uh, a golf tournament, uh, the the FCA golf tournament, yesterday morning, and it was hot. And there was, like, no air movement, no breeze whatsoever. But, I mean, you know, hot Mississippi. I didn't feel like it was that much hotter than it was one day last week. I had somebody from Ole Miss tell me. You remember me telling the story a couple of weeks ago they've got this like uh, air thermometer gun thingy that you can point at a specific surface, whether it's the ground or a helmet or a metal post or whatever, and get the exact temperature of the surface that you're pointing it at. I have, I, I mean, I don't, Doubt that the thermometer reading was this It's just hard for me to wrap my mind around This being the actual reading On the artificial surface field yesterday I was told that at one point in practice The surface of the rubber pellet synthetic artificial turf field Was 170 degrees Seems hot
3: This might be a dumb question. At what point does that start melting the plastic bottom of their shoes?
2: Uh, I'm not entirely sure of the melting point of molded rubber or plastic. Because there are times where
3: I'll go running, like Saturday afternoon. It was like 12.45 I went running. It was miserable. And when I got done, the bottom of my feet were hot. And there's no way the old gravel road that I was running on was near as hot as 170 degrees. Just not a chance.
2: Yeah. I don't know the answer to that, Morgan. I'm just passing along the information that I do have. Wonder if uh that's like a science project. Try to melt in cleats? the making.
0: Yeah, I somebody I can ask on Twitter. We'll see what he says.
3: Do you see a mailman literally fry or cooked a steak? While doing his mail route on his dashboard one, it was a couple weeks ago. Cooked a what steak and ate, ate it? it while he was working. No, he ate oh, he did the entire thing. Yep.
2: Not sure that that would be my preferred way to cook a steak. Probably not. Uh, what else? When will the transition from preseason camp to Memphis prep begin in earnest?
1: Yeah, you know, uh, still, you know, with a young team, I think it's important to get the speed of the game. Um, but what we did have a uh, kind of half and half today where we're introducing Memphis, but still getting the speed of the game um, just to try to get ahead because we do got a little bit of extra time.
2: All right. So that would have been following yesterday's practice. So yesterday they began some of the install for Memphis. Um, so, what, 12 days out from the uh, first game of the year? We know that. Ole Miss has got a bunch of offensive linemen that are young and that don't have a lot of experience. There are questions about depth. Uh, There are not questions about numbers. It's just how many guys are good enough to actually play. So how many offensive linemen does Matt Luke anticipate will play against Memphis? And a little Alex Gibbons update mixed in.
1: Um, I would say between... Seven, eight might have to play more than that, but I feel very comfortable with set, but seven or eight right now. We've seen Alex moving around a little bit. Do you have an update on him? He um, more, he's doing more football-specific stuff, like um, just trying to build that base. So when he does come back and can start contact, he's not starting from zero. He'll have a you know a, a base built, and he's starting to do more and working his legs more. And uh, you know he's looked pretty good. So I'm um, you know I, we're all anxious to get him back out there, and he's moving closer. We just we have to be smart and progressing but i think he's on track and uh, we'll get the final word uh, monday of next week i was gonna ask is there a point where he has to be back out there to realistically yeah, be know, ready i i think um i worry more about his conditioning than anything else i think he's played enough football and will will integrate pretty quickly to that part of it it's just having that base um, where he can go out there and function at full speed
2: so seven or eight offensive linemen that they feel comfortable using in the season opener against Memphis, according to Matt Luke. Alex Gibbons back doing football-specific things, and if his conditioning is to the point that they think he can play, then he could very well play. We'll make a decision on that on Monday of game week. I don't know if you guys heard this or not, but Ole his uh, ability to stop the run last year was um, blackened. What about stopping the run this year?
1: Well, I think we've uh, we did a good job early on, um, starting with some bigger personnel, some two tight ends, twenty-two personnel, just doing middle drills every day and just constantly doing it over and over and over again, and uh, and we, we've continued that throughout camp and just the repetition. I think uh, some of the bigger bodies, you know, inside help. Obviously, Kadir and Sam Williams when they're out there that helps. And, uh, you know, I've been impressed with our inside backers. We've got some big physical inside backers. Lakia has shown some natural ability to, to kind of weave his way and just, make, just get in those spots and make plays. I've been been impressed with him. Momo's been good. Jacquez Jones had a good scrimmage. He made a couple of big hits. Uh, Willie continues to come on and get better. So uh, I think uh, there is some competition there, maybe more so than any other position. People are pushing each other right there.
2: So there you go. That's Matt Luke on um... – uh, health of this team transitioning to uh, to game week prep for Memphis offensive line depth and stopping the run. Is there is there anything that you've seen that gives you a um, a thought one way or the other as to whether or not they're going to be improved on the defensive side?
4: They have more depth on the defensive line than they did. So. you would think that might help a lot bigger bodies in a a different defensive front. I have no idea if that'll help things, but it'll at least be a different uh, approach to trying to stop the run. But, I mean, they go – I mean, you defensive end, you have Josiah Cotney and Austrian Robinson on one side, Tisdale and Anderson on the other. Those are all guys that have played a decent amount of football. Then you have Benito Jones, and I think Quentin Bivens was listed on their first – depth chart like a nose tackle behind Jones in the 2D but it's really been a lot of Katie Hill and then Ladarius Cox is another freshman that is is a freshman that has really kind of gotten in the mix and gotten some reps there so I think they actually feel pretty good about they have defensive line depth whether they whether they are will be better at it or not but if you have more people and are t- attacking in a different way that's probably a better shot than doing the same thing over and over again.
2: So the defensive line would be the starting point for stopping the run but what about linebackers?
4: I think they feel pretty good about what they have on the inside. I'm not sure how much how good they feel about depth, really, because I mean you have Sonogo, you have Lakia Henry, who's been primarily taking snaps with the ones. Willie hilbert has been with the twos and threes primarily. Did some stuff with the ones early on in camp, but Jocke's Jones played a little bit last year. Hilbert's a guy that's been around a while. Jonta Evans is a junior, has played. Sparingly, so you have guys that have played football, and then the outside linebacker will probably be kind of the wild card in all this because it's an entirely new position than any of those guys are. I don't say entirely different than what they're used to doing or playing, but it's a new position that was not on the defense last year. So, not you don't really. I'll be interested to see what that looks like in the first game.
2: Coming up in about 15 minutes, we're going to visit with Ross Dellinger, or we're going to try to visit with Ross Dellinger from Sports Illustrated on the Farm Bureau guest line that is to begin the four o'clock hour. Uh, When we come back, Borky says this is the complete opposite of dumb criminal news. I don't know if it is or not, but we will uh, explore that when we come back. Sports Talk Mississippi with you in the Renaissance Bank studio, streaming online at supertalk.fm.
4: Borky,
2: you label this as the opposite of dumb criminal news. I've read the story. It feels a little dumb. It is a little dumb, but she's still on the run, so it makes it funny. She is on the lam. A serial wedding crasher is wanted by police, but not for the normal reasons of going and dancing to the 80s band and consuming the uh, food and drink that is not hers to consume. Police are asking for help in their search for a serial wedding crasher who attends ceremonies uninvited and allegedly steals gifts intended for the unsuspecting couple. An unidentified woman in New Braunfels, Texas that authorities have dubbed the wedding crasher has been preying on unsuspecting newlyweds. The Comal County Sheriff's Office needs the public's assistant, assistance in identifying the wedding crasher before she strikes again. That was the Crime Stoppers post on Monday. Let's not let her ruin anyone else's special day and bring this crasher to justice. She's smarter than things because I was thinking, okay, so if she goes and grabs a bunch of the a bunch of those kind of bulky boxes that sit out on the table next to the cake at a wedding reception, what's she going to do with all the plates and the forks and the cup and saucers? Is she just going to sell them on eBay? It's not like she can return them to the uh, you know the local store where you buy wedding stuff. Uh, she's smarter than that. Police say the woman primarily stole envelopes of cash and gift cards. Surveillance video of the woman was obtained after authorities tracked down the location where she attempted to use one of the stolen gift cards. A $4,000 reward is out there for the person who helps provide information leading to the crashers arrest
0: i don't remember this rule from the movie where you were allowed to take the gifts
2: they didn't do that they were just looking for a good time right
0: yeah they were you ever crashed
3: huh? anything
2: uh you mean gone to something that you were not invited, invited? To
3: and and you didn't know anybody there not one of those oh we didn't invite him but oh he can show up we know him something that you didn't know anybody at no have you a fraternity formal in new orleans lasted about 25 minutes in there
2: were you asked to leave
3: yeah <laughs> it was me and a couple <laughs> other guys uh it was a friday that we had ours the next day uh so we were down there and we had like nicer clothes and blazers and stuff and uh, we were sharing a hotel with them, not sharing, it was a big hotel, but we were in the same hotel as them and heard them talking about the location and they were leaving like on their way there and what they were dressed in. We were just getting in from dinner. We we're going to change and go back out. So we put on blazers and we went to that location and we were there for oh, about a half hour or so. And it had some drinks and some food until finally must've been a small fraternity. Cause a guy walked up to us and said, we don't recognize you, and you don't belong here. So we're gonna go ahead and ask you to leave. And we
2: left, but they were nice enough to us. Yeah, but crashed a fraternity formal once. There are probably places where that would have gotten you beaten up. Well,
3: we it probably would have been in that case too, because they kind of surrounded us. But we immediately were like, "Yeah, we know, we're we're out of here." Like we we didn't fuss or pretend like, "Oh no, yeah, we're supposed to be here." We we're no, we didn't do that. We just once we got caught, we left.
2: So so you didn't try and play it off and be like, ah guys, we're just having a good time. We're down here for our fraternity formal too. We just wanted to hang out.
3: Nah. I mean Nah. He knew too, and we just uh Why did uh why did you do this? Because it was fun for the story.
5: We oh, went to a bar cool.
3: down the street and, and it kept on our going on our night. Fair enough. One of those dudes had a rough day though. So Sunday morning we're about to to head back and uh, they're all sitting in the hotel lobby. It was a pretty small fraternity, probably 30, 40 guys or so that we saw. And there's a guy sitting in the hotel lobby with his, his face buried into his hands. And he's just sitting there, and everybody else is pointing at him and laughing. And, you know, it's New Orleans, so God knows what he did. And finally, someone says, hey, show the tat again, show the tat again. He stands up, pulls down his pants. He had the signature of every member in his fraternity tattooed on his backside. And it was oh. still red from the night before.
2: His entire butt, <laughs> both cheeks, covered in signatures. Doesn't seem like you'd want to sit on that though. <laughs> I had Isn't a picture of it on of my old phone.
0: Three? What
3: just happened?
2: That was great.
5: He mm.
3: had to pull off like the the clear once, like
2: bandaging and stuff. There's still like still a little bit of blood there. Oh man, it oh, was good. Lovely. I once crashed a uh, vacated table at Cracker Barrel. I don't think that counts. <laughs> the uh, the the server refused to bring biscuits prior to the meal arriving, which is something that I've always done. If I go to Cracker Barrel. I want biscuits when I sit down, and I'd asked for them a couple of times. They said we will not bring them to you before the meal arrives. Table uh, next to us got up and left. I look over. There are three biscuits left. Two of them completely intact. One of them partially eaten. I grabbed the two biscuits that were uh, completely intact and. Then our server came back by, and I was eating biscuits, and I just smiled at him. Sports Talk Mississippi in the Renaissance Bank studio. Ross Dellinger's next. Sports Talk Mississippi with you on this Tuesday afternoon. Richard Cross, Michael Borke, Brian Haydad, Brian Scott Rippy. Glad to have you along. Sports Talk brought to you every day by Mississippi Land Bank. Let's go to the Farm Bureau phone line and check in with our buddy Ross Dellinger from Sports Illustrated. Hi, Ross
6: hey guys
2: how are y'all good man kind of a crazy time of year for you i know we were supposed to talk last week and then things went a little bit haywire sports illustrated rolled out a ton of lists last week and they weren't just kind of like the -the run-of-the-mill whatever list but you got a bunch of backlash as a result didn't you
6: i did i did i got a, a lot of backlash um you know, it uh, it was a little frustrating because <laughs> a lot of those lists, I had uh, pretty much nothing to do with, or it's just a small part of, um, basically, we kind of gathered all of our, uh, we did all these top 10 lists, you know, top 10 programs, top 10 robberies, top 10 uh, coaches, whatever, you know, but we probably did 20 of them. in. We sent in suggestions, each writer sent in suggestions of their top ten for whichever category they picked. I think I sent in maybe six categories of just suggestions, and then and then it was kind of like a boot, I guess, maybe was taken uh, at the editor level and created, and, and then each one of us got one or two of the categories to write blurbs about the, uh, the rankings. And, man, yeah, I was hearing it from the Oklahoma Sooner fans, and I don't necessarily blame them as that we had them number ten all time in our greatest program list. So uh, my byline was on that one. I wrote the blurbs on that one. Did not rank the teams, but hey, you know, I, uh, I took the I took the uh, the brunt of the criticism.
2: One one of the lists that was out there was the um, I don't know best rivalries, worst rivalries, most heated rivalries in college football, and the uh, the Egg Bowl made the list. Did, did you write the blurb for that?
6: <coughs> oh gosh. Uh, I I don't think so. Um, <laughs> I'm trying to think. I do. I remember. I remember. I sent that one in. Um, I did. Yeah. Uh, I did send that like a suggested top ten in there. I think maybe our eventual list. I sent in eight, of the, seven or eight of the top ten and mine did, of course, include the egg bowl. I mean, the egg bowl. You know, I'm biased enough. So are you guys. But uh, it, it is the. Uh, dirtiest nastiest probably rivalry i've ever been around maybe it's not the best but it it is the dirtiest now it's funny i was uh speaking to some some guys with uh, the sec office last week and uh, they said the same thing we were discussing rivalries and um it uh i think it's known throughout the nation throughout the conference that that is the nastiest one
2: which is really fascinating to me. When you've got Auburn and Alabama, maybe there's a higher level of respect or because the stakes are generally higher. You, know, you think about Florida, Florida State, South Carolina, Clemson, OU, Texas, you know, Notre Dame, Southern Cal it has been played forever, Oklahoma, Oklahoma State, Michigan, Ohio State, all of these big-time rivalry games that are out there. And there's some people that would roll their eyes at the idea that the Egg Bowl is the nastiest and then some people that would say, oh, yeah, I completely agree with that. Why do you think it is that that game has the reputation for being the ugliest or the nastiest rival, at least currently in college football?
6: Well, you know, I, I, you know, and I think you're going to get, obviously, some, some bias uh, here. I mean, everybody's going to pick probably the rivalry that, um, at least that they've watched, probably one than the other, or they've been around, or they're from that state. You're going to get a lot of. Uh, you're not going to get a lot of impartiality when it comes to picking best rivalries. Um, you know, whatever geographically you're, where you're from in the country is, you're going to drift to, to there. And, and obviously, growing up on the Mississippi Coast and my family being from South Louisiana and spending a lot of time, obviously at Mississippi State and old Miss too, it, it's the one I'm. I'm certainly partial over it. But, you know, I've been to a lot of rivalry games. I've covered the Iron Bowl a few times. Um, I have covered, uh, you know, games like LSU Ole Miss, and that one's nasty as well. Um, covered some Georgia, Auburn. Uh, I, I think I've, I've spent a lot of time around some big rivalry games. And I, the Egg Bowl just goes so deep in that state. And it's probably because it's such a small state, you know, as far as population. Um, that's probably a big part of it, number one. Number two, there are no professional teams. You know, in Mississippi, I, I think that's probably um, a big part of it too. So everybody kind of circles that game. Um, so it's it, it's a lot to do with the state and the people, I think. Uh, but there is no doubt it is um, it is dirty and nasty and uh, and and you know every every rivalry game has that dirty and nasty to it. You know, all the ones on that list do. Um, but I, I just for me, the the egg bowl is is uh, is the, the worst. Best of them, however you want to look at
2: it. Yeah, Ross Dellinger from Sports Illustrated on uh, on your radio. We are just four days away from uh, the the two week zero games, Florida and Miami. Uh, the one that's grabbing the most headlines. W- will you be there for that game? Yeah, I will.
6: I'm I'm uh, leaving Friday to head down to Orlando uh, for that uh, for that kickoff game.
2: What is what's your gauge? On not making a prediction necessarily on the game, just kind of your gauge on the way this one plays out. Florida with a veteran quarterback, relatively veteran anyway, with Felipe Franks. He was a starter a year ago. New starter for Miami. New head coach at Miami, Dan Mullen. A little more time at, at Florida. How does how does this thing go?
6: Excuse me. Uh, yeah, it's um, it is intriguing. You know, you look at uh. Mullins second year, you know, a lot of expectations, top ten. He's had a lot of kind of negativity uh around the off season. I think it's up to four or five players now, I believe, involved and you know, dismissed or left the team because of involvement with off the field uh issues, I believe, that involve women, all of them. Um so so some negativity at the same time, top ten ranking, you know, coming off of a ten win team, Felipe Franks, Pedro aqu- lots of lots of stuff going on there. Um and Miami's been buzzing with, with a lot of uh, – um, it's been a little more optimistic down there. It feels like, you know, it's been a little more fun. You know, Manny his first year and they've had success at the transfer portal and there's not a ton of expectations. The pressure, it feels like, is on the Gators, you know, no doubt. I mean, it, it feels like it's resting heavy on, uh, on Florida. So uh, this will give us a good gauge of, of, I think, not just where the programs are but where the conference is. Are in general, I love these early season power five non conference games because it does give us a little gauge of of uh, how the how the conferences stack up. You you remember last year? I mean, the Pac twelve you know Washington, who ended up winning the Pac twelve, lost the game to a Auburn team that won what eight games in the SEC last year. So uh, it kind of gave us a gauge of where those conferences are. SEC ended up playing for the national championship. Pac twelve didn't make the CFP. So um, this is an ACC versus SEC matchup in arguably two of the, at the very top, two of the best conferences in the nation lately, you know, with Clemson and Alabama. So, yeah, I'm excited about it. it, uh, it, it you know, and of course, you got the rivalry, you know, the in-state rivalry. We're just talking about nasty rivalries. Um, I don't know if Florida-Miami made our list. They don't play every year. They just yeah. agreed on a home-and-home, home, I think, for a few years from now. They don't play every year. So when they play, you've got to get, uh, get everything you can out of it. So I'm, I'm, I'm excited to uh, be on hand for that one.
2: Uh, Another good early season intersectional matchup. Auburn and Oregon in the true week one of the season. Neutral site game. Auburn announces today that Bo Nix is the starting quarterback. A lot of questions around Auburn, but but questions more on the offensive side of the ball. I I don't think anybody's questioning whether or not that defense is going to be good. they just got dudes all over the place, especially on the defensive line. Has Oregon got the pieces to come in and pull what I guess Vegas would call an upset in that game to open the year and kind of maybe do the opposite of what Washington did a year ago in terms of perception for the Pac-12? Yeah,
6: I think they do, and I'm i really surprised when I saw the uh, the spread come out. I probably shouldn't be surprised. The SEC is always going to kind of get that that nod, you know, and in in you know Vegas looks to years past and the numbers. When it comes to the Pac-12 and the SEC, And I'm sure they they looked at what happened last year with Washington and in Auburn. So, but I, I do think that or- Oregon is the is the better team. Uh, they got the veteran quarterback and Herbert, um, but not only that. I mean, Oregon returned like you know a good amount of their their defense. Um, Mario Cristobal's got their lines looking like you know they've beefed up, looking like SEC lines. Um, so I, I do think they got the better team, but as you guys know, the better team doesn't always win. So that'll be an interesting one, can the Pac-12 kind of, pack 12 and kind of uh, finally uh, win one of these big power five conference games specifically over the SEC? But but you're right about Auburn. I mean, um, you know, it does seem like it seems like Auburn has turned into LSU. It seems like every year we come into a season. Where the expectations are, well, they could go win seven or eight games or they could win 12 games in the national championship. It all depends on the quarterback and the offense. It just seems like every year we're saying that. Uh, It seems like every year they have a great defensive front, a great defense. Uh, But this year, I mean, you know, a true freshman is going to start. And uh, we wrote a couple pieces uh, this summer about true freshman quarterbacks. It's amazing the number we're seeing start you know, in college football these days. It continues to climb and this is another example. So throwing a true freshman quarterback in his first game out there in in Jerry World against the top fifteen uh team in Oregon, that uh that usually does not bode well.
2: Ross, thanks for your time. Sorry guys, see y'all. So, yeah, Auburn has named Bo Nix their starting quarterback. First true freshman to start a season opener at Auburn since 1946. He must be good. Right? Well, is he the number one dual
3: threat quarterback in the country? I know it's high school, but... He had like 160 touchdowns in his high school career and 12,000 yards or something like that. I mean, the, the kid
2: is a blue chip among blue chips, but uh, he is still a true freshman. I like it. I mean, you know, Joey Gatewood had been in the Auburn system for a couple of years. Is that right? Or was he? did he redshirt last year? No, he's last a redshirt freshman. Okay. But played in some games last year. For Auburn, if I remember, well, maybe he did. He did not throw a pass last year. Malik Willis was the backup, and they completely wasted the opportunity to get Joey Gatewood some snaps because they couldn't decide what they wanted to do. I think they were trying to figure out whether or not they could trust Malik Willis in uh, in that offense. Didn't happen that way. So it was either going to be a redshirt freshman or a freshman. But don't you guys look at it? If a guy had a year in the system but no starting experience, and the guy that just came into the system was clearly better, that's the route you go. I mean, you don't just play a guy because he's been around for a year.
3: Yeah, as you said yesterday, that mindset's gone. It's who gives me the best chance to win. And this is a guy, again, he's a true freshman, so who knows how his game is going to translate uh, to the SEC, especially this early on, but... His skill set, and he's a better passer than Nick Marshall. Nick Marshall took Auburn to a national championship. His skill set fits exactly what that offense is trying to do. He's a super athlete who can also throw the football. And maybe it's different. Stidham's looking really good in the preseason, but that was always, as we said yesterday, square peg, round hole. This is an exact fit for Gus Malzahn's offense in an uber-talented kid. He's still a kid. He's a true freshman, whatever. But the fit makes total perfect sense and if he
2: translates well he's scary Um, Joey Gatewood was compared in stature not necessarily in skill set but in stature to Cam Newton 6'5", 237 big strong kid Bo Nix is 6'2", a little bit better than 200 pounds so smaller but athletic Uh, runs the ball well throws it pretty well and earns the starting job and how about getting to roll out against Oregon in a huge game nationally for your uh, your first start? Here's the other thing that I'm curious about. Let's say Bo Nix plays well as a freshman, but because he is a true freshman quarterback, even if ultimately he puts up good numbers, he has some freshman foibles some stumbles along the way because he's playing quarterbacks, the true freshman in the SEC. Does this buy Gus Malzahn a little more time? It's a great
3: question because if you see progress, it very well could um, because of how much promise he has and how much people believe in, in what a quarterback can do for everything. Um, and maybe there's merit to that. If – well, replace Jarrett Stidham with – Nick Marshall, the last couple of years. Gus Malzon's not on the hot seat.
0: Boosters aren't trying to find $40 million to fire him. Yeah. But at the same time, isn't there a, a line of thinking of, you know, what year is Gus Malzahn in? This is seventh year, I think.
2: Going into that, his seventh.
0: Yeah, that, well, why are we in this position that we have to play a true freshman quarterback? I mean, that might be one way of thinking about it, especially one that you know when you look at the last. But
2: quarterbacks come and go, and and especially in the current landscape, and they've had some pretty good quarterback play along the way.
0: I mean, yeah, but at the same time, why have they? Why were they? Why why was the recruiting to the point where we had to? We were two freshmen were the only options. You know, that's what I would look at.
3: Counterpoint. Ohio State needed a transfer in order to fill their quarterback position. True freshman beat Kelly Bryan out for the job at Clemson. Washington, great program, had to rely on a transfer to fill their quarterback position. Oklahoma, same thing, consecutive Heisman Trophy winners, had to go get a transfer. So not every – quarterback is so, so hit and miss. I mean, you've seen it with Shea Patterson to a point. Even though people put he has Heisman odds or whatever, but he has absolutely not come anywhere close to living up to the hype that he had going into his college career. Not even close. So, I mean, even the great programs and the great coaches and evaluators at times have to either go the, the true freshman route, Dabo Sweeney at Clemson, or the transfer route, Ohio State, Ryan Day, even though he's a rookie head coach, it's still Ohio State. Lincoln Riley at Oklahoma, Chris Peterson at Washington, all relying on transfers to make quarterback work. It's kind but of
0: Oklahoma, just the landscape now. Oklahoma's last three quarterbacks have been transfers, so
2: and and two number one draft picks and two Heisman, two trophy, Heisman trophy winners. Trophy winners yeah. They've figured out a way to make it work. Let, let's rewrite history in Mississippi just for a second. Let's do this first with Mississippi State. In today's landscape, in the way that quarterback. Quarterbacks are managed. The quarterback position is managed. Does Dak Prescott get the job over Tyler Russell sooner at Mississippi State? That's
0: that's a tough question because you, you know Russell was coming off a good season. He was he had set an MSU single season passing record, which wasn't much at the time. But you know people believed in Tyler Russell. Um, that said. Yeah, they probably would have just named him Deck the starter about midway through the 2013 year, probably after the third or fourth game.
2: All right, let's do this again. Romero Miller was a really talented quarterback at Ole Miss, put up big numbers. Eli Manning redshirted his first year, played very little As a redshirt freshman, but did come in at the end of the season in that bowl game and then was a three year starter after that. In this current quarterback landscape environment, does Eli Manning take over the starting job from Romero Miller earlier in that season? And maybe you've got to look at who the head coach was too. You know, in a David Cutcliffe offense, maybe not. But only one of those guys went on to be the number one overall draft pick in the NFL draft.
0: Yeah, Eli Manning was the number one high school quarterback in the country, right? He, he probably would have started from day one in, in this current climate. Even ahead of, I mean, or at worst, it would have been like what Kelly Bryant just went through. I think Kelly Bryant and Trevor Lawrence might be a really good comparison, to be honest with you. Uh, I think Lawrence may have had a better high school career, and and potentially, you know, we'll see what happens with him in, at the college level. But
2: I think that's a good. A I, I good would comparison. say the red shirt year doesn't change.
5: Mm-hmm.
2: But maybe as a red shirt freshman. But I mean, are you going to unseat a senior as a red shirt freshman when the senior's been good? I don't know. It's just kind of kind of interesting to think back on how those battles played out. Uh, in the case of Eli Manning and Romero Miller, um, almost two decades ago, and in the case of Dak Prescott, Tyler Russell, not quite a decade ago, six years ago, I guess it was.
0: Dak Prescott's first year at state was, or they that he played was twenty twelve. He redshirted the. Uh...
2: So seven years ago. The
0: 2011 season,
2: yeah. Yeah. It's kind of fascinating to uh, think about how those things worked out.
4: What do you think, Rippy? With regards to Elon Ramirez Miller? Yeah. Probably, because people have less patience in general. wonder what it would have been like if there was Twitter and no one. <laughs> that is, There would have been more pressure. Can you imagine Twitter during the Ed Orgeron era? Holy cow. I hate that website, and I might have logged on a little more.
3: Think about some of the things that happened in sports, Mississippi or otherwise, that we didn't have Twitter for that we kind of wish we did.
5: Hmm.
0: That's a long list. Malice at the Palace?
2: Yeah, that's a good one.
4: I thought you were talking in regards to Mississippi. I was like, I don't know if that list is that long.
2: Think about the uh, God blocking the field goal. Yeah, and I. And it was kind of before my time, before I was really engaged. I was thinking 1992 Egg Bowl, hey, Dad, with the stand.
0: That had been one, or the 99 Egg Bowl and the comeback? Imagine Old Takes Exposed would have had a field day with the, the, the Ole Miss uh, State 99 Egg Bowl.
2: Yeah. Was
4: that the kick and the pick? Yeah. What are like the. Oh,. Six one, whatever that game in Oxford was between State and Ole Miss, where neither team was any good. Two, both teams should have gotten losses that day. I don't remember what year it was. They That's should have a lot, lot of make balls, man.
0: A lot. Yeah.
2: <laughs> Sports Talk Mississippi with uh, you. We're going to continue hundred teams in a hundred days when we come back in the Renaissance Bank Studio. We're getting closer and closer. We're counting you down to the start of the college football season. One hundred teams in one hundred days.
5: This day is bananas. E-A-N-A-N-A-S. This day is
3: bananas. 100 teams in 100 days.
2: Okay, ready? 3, 2, 1, go! Oh. It's the final countdown! Team number 11 on the countdown of 100 teams in 100 days, the Texas AM and m fighting Aggies. Big-time fight song. Yep. Big-time
3: band. Band's great. Fight song's weird.
2: Not not the, well. the sound, the lyrics. Yeah, I mean, goodbye to Texas University. It's all about their, their entire fight song's about Texas. Goodbye to Texas University, the opening lines, and then when they get to the chorus, per se, it's Saul Varsity's horns off. Yeah, quite weird. When I was trying
3: to find the, the best version of this fight song, I found uh, a video after they beat UCLA at home in overtime, and that's their celebration song, and they're singing about Texas after they just beat UCLA on the field. Doesn't make any sense.
2: Yeah, I will say this. For all the weirdness that goes along with Texas A&M, and I kind of say that lovingly, it's a pretty darn cool game day atmosphere. That They've got the whole pomp and circumstance thing figured out, Hey Dad, you went to College Station last year, right? Or have you not been? Or are you not connected? Jeez Louise! I think State
4: played them in Starkville.
2: That's right. It was in Starkville last year. They've got Mississippi State at home this year, so maybe we got Hey Dad's first trip coming up to uh, College Station. Texas A&M went nine and four last year. Second season for Jimbo Fisher as the uh, as the head coach. Let's look at first what Texas A&M lost. They lost a 17, almost 1,800-yard rusher in Travion Williams. He was really good. 18 touchdowns. Second leading rusher on the team was their quarterback, Kellen Mond. Uh, Nick Starkle, the backup quarterback, has transferred away. He is now at Arkansas. And the leading pass catcher on the team was their tight end, Jay Sternberger, really good player. 48 catches, 832 yards, 10 touchdowns. Is that what it looks like when you really use your tight end?
3: Yeah. (laughs) Remembering they exist is a pretty important detail.
2: Not just remembering they exist, but averaging almost four catches a game and knocking on a thousand yards receiving's door with double digit touchdown catches. He's a really good player. Kellen Mond is back at quarterback. He threw for 3,100 yards, 24 touchdowns, and nine interceptions a season ago. Despite losing Sternberger, they returned Courtney Davis, who had seven touchdown catches. Cameron Buckley, who I think was injured for part of the year. Jamon Osmond, who was a big player down the stretch, and if I remember correctly, had a big game against LSU. Um, Kendrick Rogers had 27 catches and five touchdowns a season ago. So they got a bunch back in the receiving core, seven starters back on the offensive side, lost a lot on the defensive side, though. The top one, two, three, four, five, six tacklers are all gone from a Texas AM defense. It was okay a year ago. The schedule is not easy for Texas A&M. They open with Texas State a week from Thursday. So 9 days from now they will play Texas State and then have a little bit of extra time to get ready for the road trip to Clemson. Return trip. That was a a fun game a year ago. Clemson won that game 28-26 and Kelly Bryant was really good. Without Ke- Yeah, we we kind of replayed the if 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 Trevor Lawrence starts from the very beginning last year, does Clemson go undefeated. Probably I not. I, mean, I don't think Clemson wins that game without
3: Kelly Bryant. Probably not, uh, but I still think they win the rest of them and win the national championship. But undefeated, no, that that doesn't happen. And if you remember, that game was uh, the weather was awful. It rained the whole time. It was ugly, and that was good football though.
2: It was it was a pretty well played football game. Lamar in week three, and then Auburn for the SEC opener, a home game. And then Arkansas with Texas A&M as the home team in Arlington. An open date before hosting Alabama. Alabama also coming off of a bye. Road trip to Ole Miss on October 19th. A home game against Mississippi State on October 26th. And Texas A&M has struggled with Mississippi State. Texas-San Antonio on November 2nd before an open date and then a closing stretch of South Carolina at home, at Georgia, and at LSU. So the SEC East teams that Texas A&M faces this year, South Carolina and Georgia. It's not an easy draw from the East. Obviously, Georgia thought to be the best team in the East and a top-five team in the country, and then South Carolina, we'll see.
4: Don't they play South Carolina every year? That's their permanent, yeah.
2: And Texas A&M has won all five meetings against South Carolina since joining the league. Led um led 16 to nothing in that game in the third quarter last year and then had to hang on for dear life at the end. They won it 26 to 23. And then obviously the the LSU game epic with the crazy seven overtimes game they won 74-72 and then just smoked NC State in the uh, in the Gator Bowl last year. Texas A&M under Jimbo Fisher recruiting at a really high level. Um Kellen Mond, a junior quarterback, the expected starter at um at running back is going to be De- uh, Ja'Shawn Corbin who last year had 61 carries and a touchdown.
3: And he How was third team all SEC State? by the way. As voted Portland on. Was? Yeah, he was. Despite
2: preseason. Preseason. Okay. Are you buying stock in Texas A&M? It's
0: it's a long term buy.
2: Okay. I, so I might buy, buy a whole
0: this. Year. Yeah, I'll buy. I'll buy little this year, but next year is the. Uh, I think next year is the year for them to, to make their push to the top of the West. This year, I just. I think it's gonna take one more
2: year. He is a you national think there's a chance that A&M will be picked to win the West next year?
0: No, I don't think that. I think Alabama will still be picked to win the West, but uh, A&M could be picked over LSU to be second, though.
2: I, I hear what you're saying, but Tonga Valoa is likely to be gone. Najee Harris is likely to be gone. Jerry Judy's likely to be gone. Henry Ruggs is likely to be gone. Devontae Smith could be gone. And then when you look at that offensive lineman, they'll have a new right guard because Matt Womack is a uh, a senior, Deontay Brown a junior at left guard, Jedrick Willis a junior at right tackle, Alex Leatherwood a junior at left tackle. Alabama could be replacing mm,
5: nine
2: or ten starters on the offensive side of the ball next year. And exactly. I know it's re- I know it's just reloaded Alabama, but that's a lot of starters.
0: It's a lot, but at the same time, nobody is going to predict Alabama to not win the West until they don't win the West, maybe in consecutive years.
2: I'm just telling you, man, looking at the makeup of Alabama's starting lineup this year, Raekwon Davis will be gone on the defensive side of the ball. Um, Anthony Jennings is a senior. Josh McMillan is a senior. Now we'll see what he decides to do with the injury issue. Dylan Moses is going to be in the NFL Shaheem Carter is a senior Trayvon Diggs is a senior at corner Jared Maiden is a senior at strong safety Xavier McKinney freshman or is a junior at free safety likely to be a draft pick as well I mean next year could be the year that Alabama loses nine or ten starters on the offensive side of the ball and eight or nine starters on the defensive side
3: and then probably a handful of coaches as well, because that's what they do every year. And they'll still go eleven and one.
4: Yep. I know
2: we're a long way off, but I might be when when I do my preseason thing next year, I might vote A and M to win the West next year. We'll, we'll see how this season plays out. That may be a little crazy. I don't know. You got famous alums for A and M? Hey, Dad, I do. I do. I got some presidents, don't they? Uh,
0: no. They had a guy who ran Just for president, a presidential Rick Perry. library. They have Rick Perry. We'll go with him. Uh, Lyle Lovett and Robert Earl
2: Keane. Road goes on forever and the party never ends. Hmm. Robert Earl King. is that one of the three most famous
4: alumni from Texas A&M? This says Eva Longoria.
0: Uh, she went to Texas A&M Kingsville.
2: I'm not going to count that.
4: I got to be part up. of the
2: college. Uh, uh, T. Boone Pickens? Is he an A&M he, grad? This was he, Kyler Murray. He went to Oklahoma State. Yeah. And was giving them a gazillion dollars. Fort Talk Mississippi with you in the Renaissance Bank Studio on the countdown of 100 teams in 100 days Texas A&M checking in at number 11. We're back after this in the Renaissance Bank Studio. <music> Baker Mayfield in the news yesterday when a GQ profile came out that had some quotes about another NFL team's draft choice. Baker Mayfield, another guy, this from the story, include Baker Mayfield as another person surprised by the New York Giants' decision to draft quarterback Daniel Jones earlier this year. The quote blows my mind. Some people overthink it. That's where people go wrong. They forget you've got to win. Either you have a history of winning and being that guy for your team, or you don't, he told GQ magazine. There's some reports that uh, he's gone back and said, well, I was taken out of context, blah, 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 whatever. He said it. GQ printed it. Just on the surface, what do you make of what Baker Mayfield said about Daniel Jones?
3: I'm conflicted because on one hand, he didn't say anything that nobody else said at some point or another when the Giants were considering drafting this no-name quarterback from Duke. But on the other hand, he's also wrong because Patrick Mahomes didn't win in college. And look at what he's doing now. Your circumstances of winning at lower levels of football are not entirely predicated on yourself. Uh, Look at Oklahoma before you were there and then look at them this year. You weren't why Oklahoma won. Oklahoma is why Oklahoma won. And you helped, but you're not the reason. And also, you have a losing record in the NFL. You've only started 13 games. Maybe don't speak unprompted about other quarterbacks in the league before maybe you've actually done something of value. It doesn't mean anything at the end of the day. I said it about Daniel Jones on this show. But do something first before you start talking about your colleagues like that. Prove yourself before you start saying the Giants made a mistake, talking about winning. You haven't won yet. You're in Cleveland. You have a losing record. Stop. Go play football. What do
2: you think, Hey Dad?
0: I, I Porky's right in that you know Baker Mayfield is just sort of regurgitating the talking points that everybody did when when that pick was made. But I, I don't have a huge problem with him. And they asked him his opinion.
3: Well, that's the thing. He wasn't asked about it. It's completely well, unprompted. It was completely unprompted. That's what he claims
4: it was an embed. like so I'm assuming this was an embed because it was a profile story for GQ I'm sure he's following me around it was prompted by something that came across the television on SportsCenter I'm sure Mayfield saw it on television just kind of made the comment and kept going didn't think anything about it obviously if it's an embed and the guy's following you around it's on the record unless you say it's off the record so he probably didn't even hardly remember saying it if at all and then Saw how it sounded. Now he's backtracking. With regards to the winning thing, he's a two-time walk-on with the gigantic chip on his shoulder. I'm sure he equates winning to everything, which obviously not accurate, as Borky said. But in his mind, that's how he sees it because you know he's a two-time walk-on that's not six feet tall.
2: Uh, Daniel Jones responded, but not in an in an incendiary way. When asked about the quotes from Baker Mayfield, Daniel Jones said, i got a lot to focus on here. And then he went on to say, about Baker Mayfield, I think he's a great player. He can throw it, and I enjoy watching him play. There are a lot of people that said that was a very Eli Manning response. And whether or not you like it or whether or not it is bland, that plays in New York City. Have you seen his interviews? Daniel he's a, Jones? He's a clone.
3: He Eli Manning. Yes, he's a clone of Eli Manning. They drafted a younger Eli Manning. They're the same person. That may person. be why the
2: Giants liked him so much. It would make sense. You, you know you are in perhaps the most difficult media market in the country, and part of being the quarterback of the New York Giants is being able to handle the media. And if you've got a guy who's not going to say anything to get him or his teammates in trouble then maybe that's worth something to the New York Giants organization. The the Daniel Jones story is yet to be written. He's going to eventually get a chance to be the starting quarterback of the New York Giants. In 2019. Whether it's at some point this season, or next season, or the year after, you're convinced that it's going to happen this year? I think
3: so. I think they're just not going to win enough to justify keeping Eli in the game. And look, if we're going to miss the playoffs again, you might as well just give the rookie a shot at this.
2: We'll see how it shakes out. Daniel Jones has been pretty good in a couple of preseason appearances, for what that's worth. But I mean, you would rather your recently drafted first-round quarterback look good in preseason games than look bad in preseason games. A lot of pressure to be a starting quarterback in the National Football League and even more pressure to be a starting quarterback in New York City. And that's what Daniel Jones has got to deal with going forward. Two hours in the books with you. The college football fix coming your way. When we come back, we will look at recruiting budgets in the SEC. Some interesting numbers here. Back after this in the Renaissance Bank studio, Renaissance Bank, understanding you. Some interesting numbers to look at with you in today's College Football Fix. College Football Fix is driven by Ford and your local Mississippi Ford dealers. Visit buyfordnow.com and check out all that they've got to offer. The Hurry Up and Save Sales event continues. Estimated savings of up to 20% on select Ford models, including the F-150. You want to buy an F-150 Lariat, you can save 20% off MSRP. Here's an example. A $52,000 truck with $13,000 in savings gets it down below $40,000. And that's on a 2019 F-150 XLT Crew four-wheel drive truck. Great deal. You can also get 0% APR for 72 months if you choose to go that route. So great savings today at your local Mississippi Ford dealer. Speaking of savings, some schools choose to save some money on recruiting. Maybe not a great idea, but we'll look at the numbers. USA Today put the, uh, the chart out. It's a chart for the entire Power Five. The team, the amount of money they spent on recruiting that they told the NCAA about, and the percentage change from 2012-2013. Okay, so that's rewinding seven years and what recruiting budgets have done at these SEC schools in the last seven years. Obviously, Vanderbilt is omitted because... They hide their money re- results from, uh, from everybody. The biggest boost in recruiting budget in the last seven years happened at Georgia. This past year, Georgia spent $2,626,622 on recruiting. That is a 351% increase over what they did seven years ago. It's also the most money that any school in the SEC spent in recruiting. Alabama is about $300,000 behind Georgia, $2.3 million for Alabama. Their increase over the last seven years is 138%. Arkansas's recruiting budget over the last seven years has has jumped by more than a hundred percent. Last year, they spent a million and a quarter. What about teams that have spent le- are spending less now than they spent seven years ago? Auburn's recruiting budget, a little more than a million dollars, it's down twenty two percent over seven years ago. Mississippi State's recruiting budget. That is 3% less than they spent seven years ago. What about Ole Miss? Last year their recruiting budget was $704,836. It's up about 26.5% in the last seven seasons. But guys, when you look at recruiting budgets in the SEC, Vanderbilt is omitted here. So we've got 13 teams. Eight of the 13 spent over a million dollars in recruiting. Three of the 13 spent over two million dollars in recruiting. Tennessee just a hair over two million. Alabama 2.3 million, and Georgia 2.6 million. Ole Miss spent 704 thousand. Mississippi State, 453000 Now let's press pause just for a second and, and talk about return on investment. Mississippi State, with the smallest recruiting budget in the entire SEC, by a couple hundred thousand dollars, and that is with us not knowing what Vanderbilt spends. So in terms of bang for buck or return on investment, given the results of the last five seasons... Pretty good return on investment, hey dad, for Mississippi State.
0: Yeah, I mean that seems to be a uh, common common thread. You know, when we talk about athletic budget, State has the thirteenth biggest of the schools that report. They're, they're last, but they, they consistently put teams in the uh, the NCAA tournament. State does a pretty good job with its money. There's no question.
2: Ole Miss at seven hundred four thousand is eleventh on the list. More than Mississippi State. More than Missouri. Less than Kentucky, less than South Carolina, and then less than all those other teams that spend over a million dollars. Less
4: wonder. than Kentucky is surprising.
3: Borky, I just I wonder how much of this, at least for the big boys, and obviously Alabama spends more money than everybody else because they have more money to spend and that kind of thing. But the disparity between them and Ole Miss, I wonder how in Mississippi state as well, but they're a completely different animal. How much that the the national recruiting factors into it? Because like like say there's a five-star running back in New Jersey. Ole Miss and Mississippi State aren't going after him. So they don't have to pay the the travel to get there and they don't have to pay the the family's travel to get to Tuscaloosa when they take official visits. It's less expensive to travel from Meridian to Starkville or Oxford than Trenton, New Jersey to Starkville and Oxford. And so I wonder how much of that's a factor because included in this is travel for, for families that are coming in for official visits. Schools pay for that. And then also your coach is going to visit said player. If you're going to do an entire yeah. staff visit to a five-star linebacker in San Diego... Ole Miss and Mississippi State are not going after that kid.
2: I wonder how much that factors into it. I think you're onto something, and and my guess would be that there are two things at play here that are the biggest differentiators. Number one would be target area in recruiting. You know, where are you targeting kids? Your point is a good one, Borky. I mean, Ole Miss is going after kids in Mississippi. And Alabama and Georgia and Florida and Texas primarily. Yeah, probably the same thing for Mississippi State, Ole Miss, Alabama. Would Would you say Ole Miss or excuse me, Mississippi and Alabama are the two biggest recruiting spots? Hey, Dad, for for Mississippi State.
0: I would throw Louisiana in there, but yeah.
2: Okay. All, I mean, all three of those. What one's the home state, and the other two are border states.
0: Right. What's interesting about what you're saying, though, is for me, it's Ole Miss is up 26 percent over 2012, 2013. That's when Ole Miss was recruiting nationally and going and getting guys like Treadwell out of Illinois, and uh, when they recruited Rashawn Gary very hard out of you mentioned New Jersey. So I mean, it's interesting that they're up now.
2: So, so I I said two a second ago. My guess is actually there are three contributing factors here. Number one, what Borky pointed out, your recruiting footprint. Number two, I would say, is private air travel. Nick Saban's taking a private jet everywhere. Everywhere he goes, private jet. And my guess would be the majority of his assistants are also using private charter planes. And then the third thing would be recruiting staff. The number of people on your recruiting staff, your player personnel, player development department, Alabama, Georgia, and Tennessee, who is employing now a former Nick Saban protege, they've got huge evaluation staffs. So my guess would be, you know, without having a ton of details about exactly how this money is being spent, is that that's what you do? You you build a big staff to evaluate guys. You fly private everywhere you go, and you got a great big old footprint.
3: Two point three million specifically dollars, specifically
2: with Georgia, though, because they recruit so many players in the state of Georgia. Go ahead, Borky. Two point three million dollars will buy you
3: one hundred and fifteen used Dodge Chargers. By the way.
2: Yeah, well, very good. <laughs> Sports Talk Mississippi in the Renaissance Bank Studio. Renaissance Bank, understanding you. That's your college football fix, driven by Ford. View on Sports Talk Mississippi, streaming online at supertalk.fm. Let's check out the C Spire text line, 601-879-4395 is the number for you to jump in and be a part of the conversation. Prepaid by C Spire is going big for back-to-school with special deals, including a light-new iPhone 6S. For just $49 and a daily $500 giveaway. Learn more at cspire.com slash prepaid cspire, customer inspired. Uh, let's see. State gets more uh, some underrated big guys up front who are closer to home than other schools. That's Sam from Starkville. And you will have uh, recruiting people
3: and for whatever it's worth, they're not the ones that are signing kids, we will tell you that offensive line, for the most part, like when Laramie Tumsil comes around, you know he's going to be really good, but offensive and sometimes defensive lines are really hard to project because so much can change about their bodies and, and stuff like that once they get into a college weight program, that uh, you can go and get a diamond in the rough offensive lineman and you are more likely to find those kind of guys recruiting that way, especially up front on both sides of the ball, uh, versus the other skilled positions because you can only get so much faster. Uh, your hands can only get so good, but if you're developing linemen, you can really change their bodies and
2: make them effective if that makes sense. So they're harder to project harder to project. So the evaluation piece becomes key.
0: And that's something you know Dan Mullen was certainly known for as being a good evaluator and and Joe Morehead will have to see how that that works for him but you know he talks about evaluation and being how how you have to be selective quite a bit so
2: yeah um no i mean it, you feel like every staff is trying to do that but there are some places where either you don't have to find diamonds in the rough you just go get fully polished guys and you hope that that works out and then there are places that are trying to do that when Perhaps they should be trying to spend more time in the evaluation
4: department. I don't know. Um, Rippy? Would FSU be an example of not developing? Because Borky brought up that stat about how off of their line is, and all those kids couldn't have been lower rated than the kids Ole Miss and State have on their rosters currently. Yeah, I would think so, certainly in recent
2: years. But did Jimbo Fisher just miss on a bunch of kids that they brought in? See, that's the thing about Texas A&M, and we were talking about them earlier.
3: its I'm with everybody. I think he's a good football coach. He's one of a handful that have won a national championship, and there's a reason for that. Did a really good coaching job last year, taking over what he had and winning nine games. But look at what he left behind at Florida State. That's entirely his fault. And it's almost like he's getting a pass for that. The worst offensive line, statistically, from evaluators, and if you just watch them in all of college football. So what he left behind there,
2: and they're still trying to clean up the mess,
3: and that'll be a multi-year recovery process, even at a place yeah. like Florida State.
2: Yeah, there were people that were were disappointed, frustrated, ready to write off Willie Taggart just right out of the gate because Florida State was so bad. If you look at what Willie Taggart has done, he has not been a guy that is immediately a 10-win-a-season guy. Now, you, you've almost got to throw out the, the tenure in Oregon because it was so short. But at Western Kentucky, they went 2-10 and 10 in the first year then they got better went 7 and 5 and then 7 and 5. And he got the South Florida job. 2 and 10 in year 1. And then 4 and 8. So 2 games better. And then 8 and 5. They were 4 games better in year 3 and then they jump up and they're a 10 win team and they tie for first in their division in the American. And then 1 year at Oregon where they were 7 and 5 and finished 4th in the Pac-12 North and then we'll see at Florida State, 5-7 and in year one. Now, the level of patience in Oregon and Florida State is not going to be comparable to the level of patience you have at Western Kentucky and at South Florida. But everywhere he's been, it's been a bit of a reclamation project that Willie Taggart has had to undertake. And whether you like it or not, if you're a Florida State fan... He's got a reclamation project to to do in Tallahassee. I mean, what, they missed a bowl game for the first time in, I don't know, since... What was it, 36 years? Yeah, since, like, Burt Reynolds was running around Tallahassee. Been a long time. And who was it? We were talking to, uh, I guess it was Bill Bender last week, and he made the point that, you know, bowl games aren't really a big deal until you miss one after going to 36 consecutive. And pretty good point. Pro Football Focus has released their grading numbers from last year. Highest grading returning players in the SEC at each position. See if this is interesting to you. Tua Tonga Valoa, highest rated quarterback from a season ago, he graded out 90.8. The second highest graded quarterback in the SEC, with the caveat that there was a limited amount of playing time, was Matt Corral graded graded out at eighty eight point five from pro football focus, but again, that was in only four games. In terms of guys that played all the time, Jake Fromm would have been, you know, if you just take Matt Corral out of this list, Jake Fromm would have been the second highest rated quarterback behind Tonga Valoa. And then Jarrett Garantano at Tennessee, a team that didn't go to a bowl game, graded out at eighty two point four. And that may be part of the reason that people are optimistic about Tennessee this year.
3: This guy right here, at least offensively, in part, I'm buying Tennessee. Ty Chandler's a good running back, proven. His yards per carry average is like 6.5 or something like that. And and getting full-time back carries, they should be, caveat being should, should be really
2: good offensively. And it starts with him. Hey, how how about this for you? In the next three position groups, running back, wide receiver, and tight end, Vanderbilt has a top four player in terms of how they graded out a year ago at each of those positions. Keyshawn Vaughn, the second-highest-graded running back returning this year following only Najee Harris from Alabama. Kaleidja Lipscomb, wide receiver, fourth-highest-rated returning receiver in the SEC behind Jalen Waddell at Alabama, Jerry Judy at Alabama, and Kadarius Toney at Florida. At tight end... Jared Pinckney at Arkansas, uh, excuse me, at Vanderbilt trails only Cheyenne O'Grady at Arkansas. O'Grady actually graded out the highest among tight ends from a year ago, with Pinckney second, and Albert Oakwoodburnham at uh, Missouri third.
3: I'm squatting on that Vanderbilt bowl team this year. Take okay. It's a three-headed monster on offense that not – I mean, does anybody not named Alabama have a three-headed monster like that on offense? In the SEC, not in the country.
2: Mm. At wide receiver, tight end. And running back. And running back. Maybe Missouri? That's a good one. With Larry Roundtree, Oak Wugmanum, and...
3: They returned like four wide receivers that got starts last year, so take your pick.
2: How about this on the offensive line? Tackle? Fifth highest rated returning tackle in the SEC? Tyree Phillips from Mississippi State. He graded out at 73.6 a year ago. Prince sort of no Winogo at Auburn was the highest rated returning offensive tackle. I'm sorry, Hayden, go ahead. Sort
0: of like Matt Corral, you know, not as much, although more playing time for for Phillips than uh, than Corral. But I, I mean, that that sort of gives you an idea of why Joe Moorhead and company were very willing to move Greg Island over to right tackle and slide Tyree Phillips in to protect the blind side uh, for Tommy Stevens and or Keaton Thompson.
2: In the middle of the offensive line, Lloyd Cushenberry, the center, highest ranked returning, and he's first team All SEC center on every single first team you look at. So, kind of consensus, preseason, first-team, all-SEC. On the defensive side, nobody from Mississippi State or Ole Miss as an edge rusher. In terms of interior defensive line, Josiah Coatney graded out fifth-highest among interior defensive linemen in the SEC at an 82. Derek Brown from Auburn was the highest-graded interior defensive lineman at 90.6. Errol Thompson from Mississippi State, third-highest-grading linebacker that's returning this year. He had a grade of 79.9. Cale Garrett at Missouri led the way. Mississippi State's Cameron Dansler was the fifth-highest-graded cornerback returning this season with a grade of 82, and this is a good group. Christian Fulton from LSU, Shaim Carter from Alabama, Javaris Davis at Auburn, Eric Stokes at Georgia. And in terms of safety, nobody from either Mississippi State or Ole Miss. That's an interesting list. Got some guys from both the Rebels and the Bulldogs who graded out pretty well a season ago that are coming back this year. A Super Talk Mississippi media
6: production.